James chapter 1, verse 2 through 18. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Thanks, Chris. Uh, we are back in our James series. And so if you have your Bible handy, I, and I hope that you do, uh, you can open up to James chapter 1. That's where we'll be this morning, and I promise we'll get through more than one verse, which is what we did last week. Just, uh, just to remind us, James is a letter written by the half-brother of Jesus. Now keep in mind, we have evidence earlier in the Bible that, that James was not a follower of Jesus. He thought Jesus was crazy. There's actually a place in the gospel where, where James shows up with his other siblings, other family members, and they tried to take Jesus away from where he was teaching because they thought he was crazy. See, that's what happens when your half-brother starts to go around and start telling people he's the son of God. But not long after Jesus' death, something happens, and then all of a sudden, James is convinced that his half-brother is the son of God in the flesh. And then James starts to worship him. And then he becomes one of the key leaders, if not the key leader in this fledgling, this new church in Jerusalem. And he ultimately became one of the, the early Christian martyrs who was killed for his faith in Jesus. Now, listen, how do you get your siblings, how do you get your family to believe your God? Well, here's one way. You tell them you are. 
Uh, you then get brutally executed and murdered by the authorities. You get put in a grave. You spend three days there. And then you show up again and share a meal with your family. Back in the flesh. See, people like James, the story of James, how he went from uh, thinking Jesus was crazy to a follower, this is one of the best apologetic defenses we have for the resurrection of Jesus. Because people don't make this stuff up and then die for it. So that's who wrote this book, James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he wrote this book, which was a letter that circulated around to Christians who were, who were marginalized and pushed out to the fringes of the first century world. Persecution started in Jerusalem, and so they scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and this letter went around to encourage them. So let's pick up this morning at chapter 1, verse 2. And again, thanks, Chris, for reading for us this morning. Now, if you followed along and listened to Chris read those verses for us, you, you probably noticed that, that there's a lot going on here. It seems like James is kind of taking a bit of a, a shotgun approach, just kind of sending out some quick uh, quotables or some, uh, you know, very friendly Twitter-type comments that would just, well, let's talk about this, let's talk about this, let's talk about this. And, and really, this is a common critique of James. He seems really disorganized, like he's not sure what's going on. He just has to get this stuff out. And as we read that, I, I bet you could look and say, I bet Sean could preach five or six sermons on this text. And I think we could. However, what I want you to see this morning is that, that all of these little sections, all these little two verses here, three verses here, a couple verses here, they all really flow into one uh, general main thought. And I think we can condense the big idea of this morning down to a theme sentence that's, that goes something like this. Trials will come, but count them as joy because God will use them and because God is good. Okay? I believe that as we dig into these verses, as you start to highlight and circle some things and draw some connections out as we read them, you'll see that that, that is what Jesus is getting at here. Sorry, that's what James is getting at in this text. Trials will come, not might come or if trials come, but trials will come. Count them as joy, but God's going to use them and God is good. Ready? Okay, let's go. Now, when you start thinking about trials, when you start reading in verse 2 here, here's what I love about the Bible. Uh, it is brutally honest with us. It doesn't say, listen, follow Jesus and everything is going to be smooth sailing. That is a, a, a horrendous lie that is propagated in lots of places in the world, but that's not in the Bible anywhere. It doesn't say, listen, if you happen to have some struggles, if you are one of the unlucky few that hits trials, no. Look how clear the Bible is. It says, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if, when. This is going to happen. This is life. Now, before we even get farther than that, take note of that word various there. Maybe you can see it on the screen beside me. When you meet trials of various kinds. This is an all-encompassing word. So it's not like James is saying, hey, when you bump into this kind of trial or that kind of trial, you should consider that joy. But he's saying, listen, when you hit all the various kinds of trial that are going to come up, consider it joy. So what's included there? Everyone watching online, throw it in the comments, speak it out to the camera. Tell me uh, some suggestions. What kind of trials do you think are included in various? Let's hear it. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, good suggestion. Great news. Every one of you is right. Everything is included here. Various trials includes 
all trials, whatever it is. Now, for many of us, maybe most of us, especially at this time, this conversation about trials, about struggle, about hardship, this isn't theoretical. We're not reading this verse and thinking, okay, this is, there's going to be a day in my future when, when I will meet a various trial, so let's file away what this says for that future time. We are in the middle of this right now, maybe especially because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Maybe it seems like these days here at Trinity, this is all we're talking about is running into trials and, and having struggles. But again, here we are. Trials will come. But another little addition to this idea as well. Notice James 2 says, uh, when you meet trials, plural. It's not like he's saying, okay, there's, you're going to have a day of tribulation. You're going to have one day of trial. And if you get through that, just hang on for that day and you'll get all the way through it. And then it's smooth sailing after that. We know that it's not true, right? Life is full of, of mountaintops and valleys. There's good days. There's hard days. And this is what I love about the Bible. It is, it is real and it is honest about this. It meets us where we are and it doesn't sugarcoat it at all when you meet trials. I love how one pastor puts it. He says this, what we see in the Bible is that our world is not sterile. It's not safe. It's not protected. He says it's grimy. People get sick. They die. They're betrayed. They're wrongly accused. They grow weary. They lose heart. But by the grace of God, others endure. Their, their legs are strengthened. Their hearts are inflamed. They hold fast and they have a type of joy that transcends some of the most horrific circumstances imaginable. That's what we're aiming for here. The, this hope in Jesus that transcends our circumstances. So this command might sound crazy to us, doesn't it? Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. See, what it's telling us is, is not only that I'm going to have trial, not only that trials will come, multiples of them, and I'm going to have to endure them, but James says, count it as joy. What? That's nuts. How is that even possible? Well, that's where we're going to head this morning. Let me suggest two things. First of all, if we are followers of Jesus, there are two ways that we need to view trials. And secondly, there are two kinds of fights that we have to know that we are in. See, here's the thing. If we know that we're in a fight, if we are preparing ourselves for a fight, for a battle, we will act differently. We will posture ourselves different. We'll be prepared for that moment. Just like an athlete visualizes the event, visualizes their run or the competition before they start. Or, or just like I happened to on Wednesday, I was out biking with a few of the guys up at the Nordic Center and they said, listen, there's this run here, just drop your post, uh, be on the brakes, and you don't have to get air over these bumps, it's okay. This is what they're telling me moments after another uh, <clears throat> friend said, you know what, Canmore's ER docs see the most people come and visit them after this run, so uh, thanks. So me preparing is like, okay, don't end up in the ER. Drop the post. Take your time. It's not a race. It's not a rush. It makes me approach the post, th that trail uh, with a different posture. I made it through with all my limbs and all my teeth. Thank you very much. 
So what James is going to do in these next few verses here is that there are, is show us that there are two ways to think about trials and, and two fights that we have to know that we're going to get into. Two lenses for trials, two fights that we are a part of. Okay, that's where we're going today. The first lens is this. Trials are a pathway for maturity. That's where he's getting in these first couple of verses. Let me read them for us. For you know that the testing of your faith, the trials, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And then let steadfastness, let your endurance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, trials are a pathway to maturity or completeness. Now, I think somewhere in our heads we know this. And, and if we take this concept out of the spiritual realm and we, we consider all of our life experience, I think we would see this to be true, right? How have you grown? How have you gotten better at anything? How have you matured really in any way? Isn't it through the hard work of, of trying and falling and failing and stumbling and, and getting back up? Or let me ask the same question from the other side. Have you ever grown in maturity or has anything ever happened for you, whether it's physically or intellectually or, or, or just as a person, because everything has just been smooth sailing and gone your way? I'm going to guess most of the time, if not all of the time, that's not true. Not for me anyways. You learn by falling, by failing, by getting up and trying again. Remember how last week I challenged you to, to read the book of James uh, in one sitting. And I said it might take about 15 minutes, so sit down and read it, James 1 to James 5, and see what comes out. And, and I said one of the things to look for is, is look how James highlights some of the lies of the world, that the world is starting to say, no, go this way, it'll be good for you. Well, one of the, the, these lies, one of the things that is running rampant in our culture these days is what uh, Gary Lukanoff and, and Jonathan Haidt call uh, the untruth of fragility. They said, what, what one of these grand untruths that is, is seizing our culture, maybe especially in the West, is this, that, that whatever doesn't kill you actually makes you weaker. So avoid discomfort. Avoid pain. We try to instead protect ourselves and our feelings, and, and we feel like we, we cannot uh, interact with people with other ideas. We need to shut down the discussion because if they offend me, if they hurt my feelings, then that uh, makes me weaker, right? And they go on to say in, in their book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, that, that there are massive consequences to, to buying into this untruth of fragility. See, again, I, I think that, that we know for the most part that, that learning and maturity come from trials. They come from thinking you're right, but finding out you're wrong. They come from falling down again and again, but getting up and carrying on. So if we, if we know this to be true in our everyday experience, why do we think our spiritual lives would be any different? How can we mature in our relationship with God without experiencing trials, without a testing of our faith? A.W. Tozer talked about it in one of his books this way. It's a bit of a longer quote, so follow with me here. He says this, the fallow or unplanted field is smug, it's contented, it's protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of the harrow of being broken up. Such a field as it lies year after year becomes a familiar landmark to the crow and the blue jay. Safe and undisturbed, it sprawls lazily in the sunshine, the picture of sleepy contentment. Now let me tell you, lazily in the sunshine, that sounds all right to me right now. But, he says, 
that field is paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it see the miracle of growth. Never does it feel the motions of the mounting life, not, nor, nor see the wonders of the bursting seed, nor the beauty of ripening grain. Fruit it can never know because it is afraid of the plow and the harrow. In direct opposition to this, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living. The protecting fence is open to admit the plow, and the plow has come as plows always come, practical, cruel, businesslike, and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of machinery. The field has felt the travail of change. It has been upset, turned over, bruised, and broken. But its rewards come hard upon its labors. The seed shoots up into the daylight, its miracle of life, curious, exploring the new world above it. All over the field, the hand of God is at work in the age-old and ever-renewed service of creation. New things are born to grow, to mature, and consummate the grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground. And he concludes this way, nature's wonder follows the plow. See, again, that's a bit of a long quote, but sometimes I think we forget that in the midst of trial, sometimes we forget that it's the trial, it's being plowed that leads to growth. So when we're in the trial, we, we forget that. For those who, who have gone through and come out of the, the dark night of the soul on the other side, we see how, how that time of, of trial and testing has shaped us and changed us and grown us. It has helped us to see what is and what isn't important. And so that's the first lens, that the trials are a path to maturity. But that's not the only one. I said there were two, right? So here's the second one. Look at verse 5. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So the second lens is this. Trials make me aware of my need for God. Let me throw this out there. Maybe you can identify. Maybe it's just me. But when, when everything is going great in our lives, when everything's coming up just how you'd like it, how often do we just kind of stop thinking about God at all? Maybe when things are going really good for you, it's just smooth sailing, you know, the job is good, family's good, everything's good. You just think it's all about you. Hey, listen, this is, this is my talent, this is my effort, my blood, sweat, and tears have made this good life happen. If everything goes right, it's all you. But when everything starts to fall apart, well, no, that's on God, isn't it? Anyone else able to identify with that? Just, just me, maybe? I hope it's not just me. See, what, what James is trying to put together here for us is that when we have trials and when we're trying to consider all things joy in the midst of those trials, what we need to do is we need to ask God to use that trial to, to grow us and ask him for wisdom in that. It's saying, I don't get this, God. I don't understand what's going on. Can you help me understand? Give me wisdom in this. And this really ties in with what we just saw in our last series, Hope in the Dark in Habakkuk, isn't it? Where he wrestled with what he was seeing. He said, God, this doesn't seem right. This isn't fair. You don't seem to be doing what you said you would do. Help me understand. And he, he wrestled with what he was saying, all the while embracing what he knew to be true about God. That's really what James is saying here as well. So let's ask God for wisdom in the midst of trial because he will respond. Those are our lenses. 
Trials are a pathway for maturity, and trials help, me to help make me aware of my need for God. Let's look at the, the fights. There's two fights. In these next couple verses, they're tough ones. James continues, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Now, that seems really harsh, doesn't it? Ask for wisdom, God will give it to you. But if you flinch, you're not getting anything. It's confusing. But here, here's what I think the best explanation for what's happening here is. It's, uh, I came across it this week. He's, we find in this little verse, these couple verses, that there are kind of two different prayers in this little text. First, grant me wisdom, prayer number one. And second, increase my faith while killing my doubts. See, when we think about this, this great fight we can get in between faith and doubt, I think we, we know it's there quite often, don't we? One of my favorite places to turn when, when I'm wrestling with faith and doubt is, is Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 20. Let me, let me read it for us. It'll be up on the screens, but you can flip there. Mark chapter 9. We read, And, and they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the spirit, the, the demon, saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood. And this, this demon has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, the father says to Jesus, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Anyone else have that last verse highlighted in their Bibles too? I, I believe Jesus help me when my unbelief. Those places where, where I'm still flinching a little bit, help me in those. If you remember that story, and you can keep reading it later through the, the next verses in Mark chapter 9 there, you know that, that Jesus did heal the son. He, he casted out the demon, and I suspect in that moment he helped that father's unbelief just a little bit, didn't he? So the first fight when it comes to trials, we have the, f the fight with doubt. And here's the good news. You've heard me say this a lot lately, that it's okay to fight with doubt. It's okay to wrestle with God. It's okay to have questions. As one pastor says, life has a way of pounding on you in a Genesis 3 world, a world where there is sin. And you shouldn't feel guilt or shame about wrestling with doubt. It's okay. God honors the fight. God honors the wrestling. We see that in so many different places in the Bible. But the one that, that James is talking about here, that the double-minded man, he or she is the one that doesn't even bother going to God. They just kind of figure, well, I could ask for help, but God doesn't really care anyways. God's not going to help me anyways. The double-minded one is also the one that, that says they trust God and pretend they have it all together, but they really don't. And listen, I think every one of us succumbs to that from time to time. We've we got to stop that. We've, we've got to be honest with one another. I don't want anyone uh, at, who would call Trinity home or anyone listening to fall into this and, and say, you know what, I'm good, I'm with God, but really be falling apart on the inside. I don't want any of us to look like this guy. Maybe you've, you've seen this meme before. Yeah, this, this is fine. Everything's good. 
we got to quit pretending. We need God. We need one another. And we need community around us to help us wrestle with our doubts. So fight number one is doubt. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 9. James continues, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, and the flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. But blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, the second fight we have, uh, we have the fight with doubt, but then we also have to fight comparison. There was a study that came out a little while ago, it was about five years ago now, on Instagram. And the conclusion that the researchers came, that it wasn't a Christian study, but basically the re- conclusion the researchers came up with was that Instagram leads to depression. And for many of us, I probably don't have to say a whole lot more, and you're, you're agreeing with that. You see, Instagram and, and lots of other social media, Instagram, maybe especially as, uh, in that time, but now too, for the most part, that's, that's the place where everyone has it all together. See, somehow I can wake up and start scrolling through my Instagram feed and, and everyone else has this perfect life where their, their kids have gotten up, they've made breakfast for themselves, and they've cleaned up after themselves. They finished their schoolwork for the day and, they're, and the, the, you know, as the kids go on, the person's marriage is perfect, their family is perfect. Somehow they snuck a vacation in. Meanwhile, I'm still sitting at the table in, in my sweatpants waiting for that first cup of coffee to kick in. You know what I'm talking about. And so you start to see this and you start to envy and you start to resent people and their so-called perfect life or what they project as their perfect life. You start to get angry about it. Comparison. I'm not going not to lie, this is, this is a tough one for me. Especially at the start of the shutdown, maybe before some of the sheen had worn off, my social media fields were, feeds were, were full of, you know, oh, this is such great family time. Oh, look at all this rest I've been able to have. Look at this list of books I've been able to get through. Look at all these projects I've been able to get done around the house. I just love helping my kids with their school and they're just the best students ever. And I would just get so much time with them. Honestly, I could identify with none of them. And the comparison kicked in. God, how come I don't get that? Why am I so worn out? Why am I so tired? Why does this seem so hard? I don't know about you, but this, this town we live in as well, the valley we live in, I don't know if it's, this is more present here than other places or if I'm just noticing it more, but that comparison game here is going to get you. But listen, here's what James is saying in these verses. Wherever you or however you identify yourself, the lowly one, the rich one, and at different times of our days even, we can maybe identify with either. However you identify yourself in those verses, at the end, at the end of the game, it all goes back in the box. And you know what? God's going to keep doing his work, with or without you. It's all level playing field at the end. Everyone endures trials. Everyone struggles. It's like God is saying here, listen, I know. I know the struggles but stick with me. I'm with you in the good times and I'm with you in the hard times. I'm leading you into something. I'm leading you towards something, towards maturity and completeness here. I'm showing you that you need me in this. Let's keep reading verse 13. 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Here's how all this pieces together so far, and I hope you see how we are connecting these pieces. We see our trials as the path to maturity, first of all. We understand that the trials actually make us consciously aware that we need God, and and maybe, hopefully, consciously aware that God is the only thing that we actually need. Then on on top of that, we have to be careful because we're going to have to fight with doubt. And this isn't just one of those, for some reason I get some of these boxing short clips show up in my Facebook feed. I don't know why. I'm not a boxing fan. But but some of them, this is not the the 30-second Mike Tyson heavyweight knockout. This is the nine, ten rounds of just keep swinging. This is a fight that's going to last. Then if you're not careful, in the midst of fighting with doubt, the comparison game will jump in the fight too. And then if you're not careful, you'll be tempted and drawn to just give up on God's invitation towards growth and maturity and getting what you actually need, and you'll start to take shortcuts. You'll start going your own way. Say, God, forget this trial stuff. I'm taking the easy road out. And that path, he says, leads to death. But in all of this, God says, hang in there. I got you. I'm not changing. I'm doing this for your good. I'm with you. I'm for you. I love you then James tells us what we have to do in the moment. To turn our eyes from the things of this world onto the nature and character and goodness of God and embrace who he is. Look at verse 16. I read it earlier. I'll read it again. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, for every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's saying, Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Listen, when you're in the midst of a trial, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a struggle. But don't be deceived and don't be fooled. The world is going to tell you to give up. Your own flesh is going to battle with you saying, this is way too hard. Find an easy way. How can God be good if you have to go through this thing? You're going to want to believe that God isn't good. And you're going to wrestle with comparison and doubt. But remember, everything that is good and perfect comes from God, is a gift from the Lord, the Father of lights. As one writer says, one of the greatest anchors for your soul in the trials that come, regardless of the intensity of those trials, is this, that the greater your knowledge of the goodness and grace of God on your life, especially in the world of common grace, the more likely you are to praise him in the storm the greater your knowledge of the goodness and grace of God on your life, the more likely you are to praise him in the storm. When we talk about common grace, we're talking about things that that are common to everyone. Things like sight, smell, the breath that's in your lungs right now, the rain that falls and greens up the grass and makes the flower bloom. Friends, family, graces that, that are common. The other thing we need to read in those couple of verses is that there is no variation. There is no change in God. God doesn't change his mind on us. 
in just a little bit, we're going to celebrate communion, and, and I think that ties this all together. I love how I heard one writer say this. You know what? God knew what he was buying on the cross. Jesus knew what he was getting when he went to the cross for you and me. He's not changing his mind. They're not madly up there in heaven looking for a, re- a receipt to return you, a return me. They knew, God knew, Jesus knew all of your failings, all of your shortcomings, all of your weaknesses, and he still went to the cross. Even when we feel that we have somehow let Jesus down, he paid for that on the cross. And that's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8 to us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid it all willingly went to the cross out of obedience to the Father and out of love for us. That's the what and the why we remember when it comes to communion. All of our sins, all of our rebellion, all of our guilt and shame paid for on the cross. It's done. It's finished. And in him there is no variation. There is no shadow of turning. There is no changing. He said done, and so it's done. Finally, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Here's what he's saying. God chose you. Did you see that? This wasn't just somehow accidentally we made the list. Of his own will, he brought us forth. God chose you. This was his idea. He called you to himself. He wants you in his family. He did the work. You are loved. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for these words this morning. Thank you that uh, even though it may seem that James is a bit scatterbrained, he's a bit all over the place, that there's connection here. Thank you for all the things that we saw. As we, as we approach our trials that will come and when they come, Help us to see them through those two lenses and help us to prepare for those two fights of doubt and of comparison. I don't know, maybe you're tuning in today and that's where you are. You're, you're doubting God's goodness. You're comparing yourself to others and say, how can he or she have a good life and I'm stuck in this mess? I just want to remind you again of, of everything we've said and, and where we maybe especially just finished, that God chose you. God knows you. God is, is good. He is using these things to draw you to himself. And I would be honored just to, to pray with you as we turn those things over to God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you chose me. Thank you that you came and you, you walked this earth like we did. You were tempted in every way as we are, but you were without sin. And thank you that you were obedient to the Father. You showed us how to relate rightly to him and to others and to creation. Thank you that you were obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross, so that we can cling to your righteousness and we can be made right by your works. We can be back in relationship with God the Father. I thank you for that. Maybe today is the day for you where God has made it clear that he loves you. He is for you. He is with you in this thing and he chose you like it says right beside me here. He wants what's best for you. 
You don't have to have it all figured out, but, but you, you want to take this next step. Maybe today is your time. You don't have all the answers, but today might be the day where you want to commit to following Jesus. Let me remind us, who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. He was perfect in every way and walked this world, showing us how to rightly relate, again, to God and to creation and to one another. And he was perfectly obedient to God in every way, and he went to the cross, and he died for you and for me, for all the ways that we have taken shortcuts. We've gone our own way for all of our sin, and he died for for those things, to pay for the consequences of those things, so that anyone who calls on his name would be saved and forgiven and transformed, brought back into the family, grafted into the family of God, considered heirs with Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how dark your life feels, how, how heavy this trial, trial feels for you. When you call on Jesus' name, he hears you, he hears your prayer, and he forgives you, and he makes you new. If today is the day, if today is your day, and I know over the number of weeks we've been online, there have been people where it has been their day, and today it might be yours. I would invite you to click that little raise hand button that says, I want to commit to following Jesus. If you're watching on YouTube later or, or on Facebook as well, there's going to be a, a link in the comments that goes to our page that says uh, trinitycanmore.com commit. If you hit any of those three buttons, it's going to take you to a short form just to let us know that you have made this decision today. It's such an amazing decision. We want to be able to celebrate with you and coach you towards next steps. So if that's you this morning, if you want to commit your life to Jesus this morning, let's pray these words together. Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins. Change me and make me new. Help me to follow you. Jesus, be my Savior, Lord of my life. Fill me with your spirit so that I can serve you and I can follow you and I can make you know my life is not my own. I give it to you. Thank you for new life and now you have mine. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen, amen. Listen, I know that today was somebody's day. So let's, let's give them a hand for praying for that for the first time. We are excited. We want to celebrate with you. Uh, in just a minute, I'm going to throw it back to Arnie to lead us in some closing songs. But before we do, uh, we're going to celebrate communion together. So if you've got your cup and your bread handy, I invite you to grab it. And, and we're going to remember what Jesus has done for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul teaches us this way. Let me find it here. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what we are about to do together is we're about to take this bread and this cup and say, thank you, Jesus, for your body broken for me and your blood shed for me. I can't do this on my own. I can't do this life on my own. And so I need you to be my Lord and Savior. That's what it means to proclaim the Lord's coming, that we are submitting, we are, are pledging our allegiance to Jesus. So let me pray for the bread and the cup, and then we'll eat and drink together, and Arnie will lead us in a closing song. Jesus, again, we thank you for your body broken for us, your blood shed for us. I pray that as we, we gather together in our houses all over the town, all over the valley, all over the, the province, and really even the world, that we would remember these, this moment, you going to the cross for us, but not staying there, 
but rising again three days later, conquering Satan, sin, and death so that we can cling to you and you are always with us through our trials, through our temptations, through our struggles, so that we would be made complete, that we would mature. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's take and eat and drink together.